welcome to another Breakthrough Research Podcast episode. My name is Marjorie, I'm a senior lecturer in Ethical Artificial Intelligence at Sheffield Hallam University, and I'll be hosting today's episode. The Breakthrough Research Podcast is supported by the Industry and Innovation Research Institute at Sheffield Hallam University, and we are going to give you an insight into the work that we do. On your lunch, in the morning or evening, we want to be there on your break. Screens down and tune in to learn so much more about not only new and exciting research, but also the journeys behind the researchers themselves. Today, we have with us Professor Simona Francese. She is a professor of forensics and bioanalytical mass spectrometry. Sounds very exciting. Thank you, Simona. Thank you very much for uh, having me today. We are making the recordings by digital platform with simple equipment that we have available. The episode you are listening to now was recorded on the 28th of March, 2022. So let's start, Simona. Tell our listeners what path led you to your current, to your current work and working at Sheffield Halle University. Okay, so um, things like this are never straightforward, uh, but in a few words, I did my degree in chemistry uh, at the University of Salerno in Italy. I then decided to pursue a PhD in chemical sciences. I then started, since it's the last year of my PhD studies, wanted to kind of branch out and see new realities and make new friends and see new places. So I decided from my last year of PhD studies, I would go to the University of Leeds and I worked at the Asbury Center for Structural and Molecular Biology. And I was there for uh, my last year as a result of an award of a Marie Curie Fellowship. Um, so then after that, I went back to my university, did a sort of small contract. I then went back to Leeds for more for a postdoc. I then went to the University of Florence in Italy for a three-year postdoctoral position. And then again, uh, my, my love for England drew me back to it. And so I did a small fellowship, a three-month fellowship in Sheffield. And I started to kind of getting to know what was in Sheffield at that university that I could have liked, uh, maybe. So then I applied for a six months uh, lectureship at Sheffield University, which became permanent, I think, after the first three months. So I've been in Sheffield since 2008. And that's where I still currently am. Excellent. Fantastic. Right. So your title is a mouthful. You're a professor of forensic and bioanalytical mass spectrometry. Tell our listeners what that, does that mean? Okay. So I'll start with the last part. So mass spectrometry is a, an analytical technique that simply measures how much the molecules weigh. So as much as we have scales and we weigh ourselves from time to time, sometimes we cry when we do, uh, molecules also do have a weight and we measure their weight or better terms, their mass to retrieve their identity. I know it might sound strange, but if I know their mass or their weight, I am also able to know who they are. And the term forensic is a particular application of mass spectrometry. So I use this technique to elucidate problems that are of forensic interest. And my main focus with that lies in fingerprints and biofluids. 
Wow, that sounds extremely exciting. Um, and my next question would be, what made you want to work on this application area? Why did you choose forensics? Oh, all right, so <laughs> how long do you have? <laughs> I'm gonna try and be brief. Um, again, I said before, it, things in life are never straightforward. You never go from A to B. So I have to confess that my ambition, uh, and my interest since I was 16 was in forensic psychiatry. I wanted to be a forensic psychiatrist. And I still read loads of essays, you know, obviously all the Freud stuff, the Young stuff, you know, the classics. Um, and I thought, right, so what you need to do is to enroll into the medicine course and obviously enroll on that path for however many years to become a forensic psychiatrist. So I did. Uh, I was accepted at a school of medicine. And then this was in a different city from where my family was living. Then life happens and my family needed me there. So uh, with much regret, but you know, in, in a way I don't regret my choice because family always comes first for me. I um, had to decline my place at the School of Medicine after a few months. And I said, well, I'm gonna get there. At some point, I'm gonna get there. And you know, I like science. I'm gonna enroll into a chemistry degree. And I always had forensics in mind, even though it couldn't have been you know, anything to do with behavioral science and uh, psychiatry and anything like that. So I looked at all sorts of different problems since I enrolled to the chemistry course and since I became a PhD student. So it was a lot to do with diseases and viruses, um, pharmaceutical problems. But I always had that thing that sooner or later I would have I would have done something forensics. And the occasion arrived when I was hired at Sheffield Allen University. So on day two, I was told now you're basically on your own if you want to set up a research group you feel free to do so but you have to work at it on your own and do what you like so i was kind of given carte blanche to, to do this so i thought right this is my great opportunity to do it and yes i can't do anything behavioral science related but i love forensics and i love the fact that you can be helpful you know to society and keep them safe so i started to get interested i mean it, it, this is undeniable the fingerprints are kind of fascinating you look at them and you just get mesmerized by you know that pattern that twists and, and the fact that it's unique to all of us so i started to look at this and i thought you know being a chemist you look at it in a completely different way from what other people do and yes i was seeing lines but in my mind i was seeing molecules as well you know everything that is visible everything that is invisible as well is made up of molecules so i thought how strange that despite the fact that fingerprints are made up of molecules no one has ever really exploited the content of a fingerprint to tell something more about somebody else, the person has left it. And that's how I started. So applying my background in mass spectrometry to try and tell something more about the person that's left it. And this is my 14, 15 years research now. Wow, amazing. Can you tell our listeners how can you tell anything about a fingerprint using mass spectrometry? So try to explain very simple terms. You are measuring molecules, but what is yes. it that you are looking for? So it, this, is, this is interesting because you can look for something specific or you, can, you may not know what you're looking for. 
So if you don't know what you're looking for, then you might get some surprises of encountering molecules that you've seen before, or you know their mass and therefore you've seen before. Or you can use those molecules that you see to actually ask, um, well, show me where these molecules are present in the fingerprint. And then using this software that we call imaging software, the software gives you back an image of a fingerprint, which basically shows you where the molecules are present. So this is another way to reconstruct fingerprint images. So not optical images anymore, but molecular images. And we can reconstruct thousands of molecular images from one fingerprint. So this is amazing because you can then help the investigators with additional detail that can uh, help them to uh, match that crime scene mark to a fingerprint record better, better than they can do at the moment. But the other aspect of it, you know, like I mentioned behavioral science, I do what I've called something like chemical criminal profiling, because by measuring the mass of the molecules and by retrieving their identity, you are able to infer intelligence about that person, what they might have been doing if they have pathologies, if they take any medications, or if they take any recreational drugs, so you can talk about something uh, around their lifestyle, or even actions prior to or during committing the crime. So when we see condom lubricants in their fingerprints, and then the, the, you know, the victim states that a rape has happened and provides corroborative evidence. For us, what we're seeing is really important to corroborate, again, the investigation. So it's, it's according, so according to the molecules that you see, you can tell the investigators, hey, this is an indication that this person um, is under this medication or, or has this pathology or makes use of drug or has done this. And we also looked at identifying the sex of an individual from the molecules that are present there. So you can see now we can narrow down the pool of suspects and then better inform investigations and speed them up. So are you telling us that what you do is what we see on TV in the CSI shows? <laughs> well, um, kind of. It sounds like magic, but it really isn't. <laughs> Whereas when you when you look at CSI, uh, you know, episodes, you know, it, my mind is sort of blown up and just think, well, this is a bit like sci fiction, isn't it? But they always draw a little bit from reality. And then obviously they, uh, they add the drama to it. But yeah, it is just as exciting and as mesmerizing. That's why it keeps me going, you know, still after all these years. Excellent. Can you tell our listeners what is, how is the day-to-day -day life of someone who works with mass spectrometry? Because I know those are, you know, very cool kits to work and quite expensive. So can you tell us a bit more about, you know, how many do we have in Sheffield Holland and what would your PhD students be doing like in a day-to-day -day basis? Yes, so uh, at the moment, our lab, our um, analytical lab, looks a bit like a playground, and there is one more toy to be added. We are um, really state-of-the-art um, laboratory for uh, mass spec. We have several types of mass spectrometers because several different types of mass spectrometers can look at certain types of molecules better than others. So depending on what you need to do, you need to use a different kind of equipment. But we have really, you mentioned expensive, we just 
just acquired something that is as expensive as 800,000 pounds worth of equipment. And we're gonna soon have a, uh, an even more expensive uh, type of equipment. Um, and we can look really with all of this, we can look at anything ranging from small molecules such as uh, drugs and fatty acids to more biological molecules like uh, um, amino acids. And then you go up, you can look at proteins and then the small version of proteins, which are peptides. So you really cover a big range of masses and each one of those will tell you something special about I don't know, a disease about how the drug is working in your body um, or how you can deliver the drug better. And this is obviously in a pharmaceutical environment and I've talked about a clinical environment, but it, we do a lot of stuff in terms of um, environment too. Um, and uh, of, of course there is the forensic strand. So we really look at a variety of different problems um, in the laboratory. And the life of my life and the life of PhD student is a busy one because obviously this is, a, a complex uh, uh, sort of kit to use. So there is a lot of training going on and the training is kind of never ending because you learn, you learn stuff um, every day. Uh, I unfortunately, because um, you know, the job is very complex, you don't just do research, you do a lot of teaching as well, as you well know, uh, we don't get the luxury to play with the instruments uh, all that often. So I'm kind of restricted more than anything to data processing, which is one of the things I like the most because this is where you actually assess whether the experiment that you planned uh, you planned it in a way that is effective and correct and you can understand what else you can do to actually tweak it to get the answers that you want and more times than not you're left with oh i have no idea what this means so this becomes you know the challenge like you don't sleep at night because you've got to understand why that has not worked but it's all part of the fun at the end of the day and then you know until you have that eureka moment that where you understand what's going on um, and that makes it worthwhile it's the path to discovery it's what yes. drives i think most of research it's fantastic you mentioned that the you know the elephant in the room the teaching part uh, can you tell our listeners you are obviously an academic as well as a researcher can you tell us what is your favorite part in being a teacher and what is your least favorite Okay, so um, very simple. I don't know, maybe many people might have said that, but my favorite part is the part where I understand and realize that there is a connection between myself and the students. And then I'm getting them interested in, in what I'm teaching and also about the reasons why I'm teaching what I'm teaching. Because some subjects may sound really dry, but those topics that are dry, still have a purpose which is to stimulate your mind in thinking differently or thinking outside of the box so that when you encounter a problem that vaguely resembles uh, what you, you, you've been proposed you can apply that kind of reasoning and then get the answers so when I see a student that is engaging with that process regardless of the result whether or not they get the answer but when I see the student engaging with that process that's the you know that makes it worthwhile that is the thing that I enjoy the most Conversely, I don't like when, you know, there is this sort of upfront um, determination not to engage with the process because it is a little bit sad, you know, they come to class and, they, you know, getting to university is an expensive thing, isn't it? It's not something that you just do it. And so it, it's a bit of a shame when you see lack of interest or lack of engagement. 
The other thing I don't enjoy, I have to tell you, Marjorie, is all the admin connected to it that I really, I have to be honest, I really don't enjoy. And it does take a lot of time, which is time subtracted to the students. So I don't know how we solve that one. Yeah, that's a mystery. If, if anybody, you know, that is listening has ideas, please send us suggestions. Right, let's go back a bit in time and look at Simona when she was a child. So you mentioned that really early on you wanted to do, you know, forensics. Yes. But how about when you were you know, much younger, what made you want to do, to do, to work with science? All right, so that's an interesting one as well because um, I suppose one element to it, even though I didn't know I wanted to do science, but one element of it was curiosity. I've always been incredibly curious. You know, the sort of annoying kid that asks why like a million times, I was that kid. Uh, so I think that's part of it. But interestingly, I have to confess to you, I was actually a lot better at disciplines like literature um, and, you know, languages. Um, and I always felt I wasn't particularly good at science. I was okay in chemistry. I was really good at biology, but I don't think I was all that good in physics or maths. And this drove me insane. Like I could not understand why I couldn't be just as good. So this is kind of constant on my life. So I, some people will say that I like to suffer, but if there is something that I am not particularly good at, and there isn't a reason for it. So maybe the reason it's just a psychological barrier is a fear rather than anything. I'm going to have to dive straight in um, and try to overcome that fear. So I think this has also played a role in what I chose subsequently. I chose the, the most difficult path I thought, uh, for me, um, but I had to prove to myself that that was a fear and that could be overcome. Sounds very strange. courageous, very courageous, very courageous. Uh, you mentioned as well that because of your research, uh, you interact with lots of different disciplines. So you mentioned forensic, which, which is in your title. You also mentioned medicine and so on and so forth. So can you tell us, you know, how it is to interact with all those different people and what are the main challenges and advantages as well? Okay, so you, I think from my perspective, you have to interact with lots of different people. There is no piece of research uh, that could make a real impact in, in the world if you don't talk to the people that are going to use it and if you don't talk to the people that look at the same problem in a different way, in a different angle. So you can't just use your discipline to solve a problem that is never going to work, it's never going to happen. And equally, it, you're never going to make it if you don't understand what are the challenges and the needs of the people that may have the problem that you're trying to solve. In fact, do they even have that problem? Or are you trying to solve something that they're perfectly happy with? So it is important, I think, in a life of a researcher to, to, to remember that we're not just lab rats. We need to get out of the lab, we need to talk to people, establish connections, open a dialogue, that takes a long, long time. But it's extremely rewarding because of the human interaction, because of the professional growth that you're going through, and also because it's enhancing the value and the significance of your work. Naturally, this comes with challenges. So I mentioned the fact that it's time consuming um, and you often have to work at night time because you've just gone on a field trip to talk to somebody and have not done any work. <laughs> Meanwhile, so the rest of the work awaits you. 
but the other difficulty is the language, which is something that I've tried to tackle uh, in my own way. Uh, in fact, I've put together a, a European action to address this problem because people from different disciplines naturally will speak a different language. And we don't understand ourselves when we speak that language that others might not be able to comprehend it. It's too specific, it's too jargony. And so it is important to find that level of communication uh, where you know, we all sit around and understand each other. And I, I think that is important in terms of the language, but also to have tools like computer vision tools that help us to understand difficult topics. That is also equally important. But again, it involves to talk to people that do that and understand them, and then they have to understand where you're coming from. So yeah, there's a lot of advantages in talking to people, interacting to people, as I mentioned, but of course, everything comes with challenges. But as long as we recognize them, identify them, then we can find a way around it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. We, we have, you know, a, a starting collaboration going on and we, we definitely are trying really hard to speak yes. the same language. So it's, it's essential. And I completely agree with you as well. There is no research on your own. Research is, is, is collaboration. So it's, it's part of it. Right. So we are moving towards uh, the end of our chat. I hope everybody else is enjoying as much as I am. Simona, you are a very successful woman in science uh if we have you know young girls listening what could you tell us that would you know make them want to come and study science chemistry you know biology computing maybe what would you say to them right so uh, you know i'm not going to be uh naive and sort of uh, cheesy about this as in you, you can't hate science and then trying to go into science. I didn't hate science, I loved science. I just didn't think I was very good at it. So this kind of personality trait made me go into it, but into something that I was already liking. Um, so that has to be there. The curiosity has to be there. I would say the resilience as well. And although this is something that you further develop when you get into the field, but you have to be someone that doesn't stop at the first difficulty and be prepared that there will be loads of difficulties but there will also be a lot of rewarding moments as well i'd say you know to keep that fire in your belly and you know the passion that you have is important because otherwise you there is the risk that you lose the bigger picture you suddenly don't know why you're doing what you're doing but if you keep the bigger picture you know the criticism that comes it will always be there some criticism in fact not even uh what founded but some other we might not like it but it makes us grow so instead of sort of crying and saying oh this person didn't like the way i did this and that let's try to see what that person was really trying to do Pro probably help us to do better so i would say probably this applies to anything and doesn't apply just to science it applies to anything that you do in life you know diving with the passion with the curiosity with the enthusiasm uh with knowing that there will be ups and downs but you know what you're working for you know what you want to get at and then this is why you so if you're looking you know long distance rather than being short-sighted uh, you know get the help they don't be afraid to ask for help and don't be afraid to push yourself out of the comfort zone because the minute you start getting comfortable is the minute that you know you have to do something different because you stop learning and if you stop learning you're not progressing in your research
uh, and it's, it's never going to stop. <laughs> You're going to learn for the rest of your life. So yeah, I, I'd say this is what I would, I would tell them. Fab. And my very last question for you is, what do you do when you are not working? Oh, okay. I'm going to be boring here. So, um, <laughs> well, one thing is probably boring because everybody might do that. And it is, I really like going to the gym. It's the one time where my brain is able, capable to switch off because you need those times out as well to recharge batteries. So I like doing that. But I also do something that people may consider a little bit weird. So since I was probably about 15, I had this passion for uh, playing with some sort of clay to make a miniature food. So especially, you know, when we approach Christmas and there's a lot of nativity going around in the markets and I start making this sort of all types of foods and they, you know, I, I paint them and they look very realistic. And again, it's, it's, <laughs> I think it's the fact that you, you turn something gray and shapeless into something colorful and vibrant and with different kind of shapes and is is a bit maybe fitting with the rest of my life and the rest of my work it's lovely to see something growing into something different that's why i do it and I'll, it also relaxes me <laughs> to tell the truth fabulous um if you people got interested in your area um or maybe they are in school children and they want to you know follow your path into undergraduate degree or Tell yeah. us what, which MSc do you teach? So can you give us an overview of, you know, what are the options there, depending yeah. on the level that the, the listener is? Okay, so, so we're talking about forensics here, and forensics really encompasses a series of different dif disciplines. So whether you're interested in physics or chemistry or maths or biology, it all do. It is all science and you'll find your way into forensics. So the courses that I teach, so I teach at the undergraduate level, um, mainly level five and level six, and it's chemistry related subjects, but it's mostly around analytical chemistry. So what techniques there are out there that we can use to find out about molecules and their behavior and their identity um, and so in this i apply this teaching both at level six and a master level as well so there's master in analytical chemistry for example uh, but also in pharmaceutical sciences they learn a lot about these analytical techniques so it can't it's not restricted you know to analytical science and to forensics but analytical science is kind of the basis uh, where you go into the different labs so it gives you that kind of card to play if you don't know exactly what to do next but you have a level of expertise and a level of skills that you can play in different types of laboratories and different types of environments so um, I also teach um, a module for the research project which I love I don't think I'm gonna ever ever let go of this because in this research project it's not just about what to do now what to do next how to do it again I am in my element there because hopefully hopefully I'll be able to transfer the passion for for research and also a bit of the attitude that I think helps uh, to do something like this fabulous so I think we are you know, amazed by your uh, uh, your career and your experiences in doing research. So thank you. Thank you. So we hope you enjoyed our break time podcast. Thank you, Simona, for joining us today. Thank you. That was really lovely um, to talk to you, Marjorie, today.
See you next time where we'll be meeting with another of our researchers. So with screens down and tuning, you won't wanna miss it. Goodbye.